to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. I'm not speaking tonight, but I wanted to, I'm really excited about who is. If you were walking in tonight and you got one of these booklets, this is put up by our New Life Global Ministries team, and uh, they, they, it just a, it's just a report on all the missionaries that we support and some of the teams that we've sent out. And if you got one, you'd flip over to this page where it says Africa Ministries Network, AFMIN, and then it says Stephen and Morgan Todd. Well, that part's not right because Dr. Stephen Todd is married to Linda. Not Morgan. There's all kinds of confusion here tonight. But Morgan is his middle name, which, yeah, anyway, so, which he's adamant is a guy's name. So anyway, but, 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 but Stephen Todd is a, uh, a dear friend of mine, has become just a, a, a good coach and friend to me in ministry, spent many, many years in the pastoral ministry. I've told you about him and has spent the last, over the last decade or so, training pastors in Africa. Recently, he just came back from West Africa and Liberia, and we all prayed for him several weeks ago. And so I wanted him to come and share with us tonight. Please welcome Dr. Stephen Todd. Thank you so much, Pastor Glenn. I don't know about you guys, when I showed up this evening and I walked in, it just seemed so wrong. The seats were aimed up here, and, you know, I was very disconcerted on the whole thing. You know, Lent was just a powerful reminder to me of the frailty of human of our human existence. Linda and I prayed about what we should give up because Pastor Glenn had challenged all of us as a literally as a as a physical reminder in some way that Jesus sacrificed all for us. And I remember when Glenn mentioned it in my mind I thought of the one thing Linda and I uh, enjoy probably three, four, even five nights a week, uh, just a little snack, maybe a very short program before we go to bed. I am one of those rare people that has never popped microwave popcorn. Uh, we do real popcorn the real way, the way my dad popped it, the way I popped it, the way my boys pop it, uh, you know, real popcorn. And I thought to myself, oh, I hope Linda's not thinking we should give up popcorn for Lent. <laughs> And she said, and we're driving home, what do you think we should give up for Lent? Well, I don't really drink coffee anymore, so I thought Starbucks, when I heard Glenn say that, that'd be a great thing to give up because it wouldn't affect me. And I said, I don't know, honey, what do you think? She says, well, what I think is what I don't want. I thought, oh, and she said, popcorn. Went, oh, but that would hurt, you know? And so we did, and uh, boy, I looked forward to Sundays. You know, the, the find the loophole in church history where, you know, and it was great, you know, and we gave our, our money, you know, and which I was just so delighted and touched at that testimony that we got to be part of that, of blessing those two women. But as you know, Pastor Glenn gave up Starbucks and, and coffee and tea. So uh, what was it last week we met for, or the week, just the week before Easter, we met for coffee, which is, I think now was a really stupid thing for me to suggest because I had tea and Glenn had water. And, you know, I, I kind of felt bad, but then again, not that bad. So it's a delight to be here again, up here. I'm here all the time, but uh, to be up here. And I want to thank you for your prayer covering. I did just get back two weeks ago from West Africa. You all were kind enough to pray for me during that trip. It was a very short trip. 
but a very intense one and a very, very significant and, and fruitful trip. And I just want to share very briefly one little tidbit, one little story. If you followed me on my blog at all, you know that I had an encounter with a shower door that didn't, wouldn't open and a few other things. You can go to my blog. But the day we were leaving, we were getting ready to uh, begin our trip to the airport. My, my colleague, Pastor Mark Glenn, from uh, just outside Chicago, and I were, we were uh, with our host and he was driving us uh, some distance from the city of Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, to a region where he had acquired 10 acres, he and his church. And they were in the process. They already had the foundation. They were building a school. They were building a medical clinic. And just such great vision that this church had for, for the, uh, the poorest people you can imagine. My, uh, Liberia was in civil war for almost two decades and has just known peace for a few years and horrific things that happened during that time. We saw it. We, we had a wonderful little lunch uh, of, of unusual lunch at his house in the village where, and he had all these orphan children they had adopted and, and all these things going on, things I'm familiar with because I've, I've been to Africa uh, scores of times. But on the drive back, and this is a village, you know, we're, we're going down this dirty uh, road and I'm, I'm first not paying much attention because it's familiar surroundings to me and oddly as that might sound but then I saw as we passed like a construction site where they were making bricks from you know uh, clay and mud and and straw and actually drying them in the sun and they were making bricks but I looked and I saw young children like a boy about 10 or 11 hauling bricks on his head and then I looked beyond that and I saw a little girl struggling with a beat-up old wheelbarrow full of what appeared to be cement or mortar. And then near the end, I saw a little boy who couldn't have been more than eight or nine. He had his shirt pulled over because it was oppressively hot and humid, and I was in an air-conditioned vehicle. And he had his his little shirt pulled up kind of over his head kind of to, to shield him from the tormenting sun. And he was also struggling with this very rickety, Uh, wheelbarrow. And as I saw him, I looked on the other side of the road and there was a group of African school children in their traditional school uniforms, the blue and white uniforms that you see all over the continent. And they were laughing and joking as they were apparently walking home from school. And I said to Pastor Peter, my host, I said, why aren't those children in school? And as we drove past them, and I'll never forget the look of that one little boy's face with his, his shirt kind of pulled up, just the hollowness in his look and expression. And Pastor Peter said, well, their parents probably can't afford the school fees. And I said, how much are the school fees? He paused and he said, about 50 to 75 U.S. dollars a year. And I said, and because the parents can't afford this, the children have to work? He said, yes. If they can't go to school, then they just start working. And my heart was so grieved and my spirit was so grieved. And I, and I muttered, I guess, more loudly than I thought. I said, this just isn't right. And Peter looked up at me with this big, uh, somber face and the, and the wide eyes that he has. And he said, I know. That's why we're building a school. That's why we're building a clinic. That's why God's called us to reach this village and reach these people with the gospel in a, in a tangible way. And I remember just shaking my head and saying, Lord, may there be a hundred more just like Pastor Peter. May there be a thousand more. And what an honor it was to know that I'm developing a 
a relationship and a connection and a kinship with, with this man and with many others just like him. So thank you for your prayers and, and just the continued prayer and support as we move forward in that project. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8. If you were at church this morning, uh, Pastor David Perkins, he scared me at first. I thought he was going to cover the same section, but he went just past the section that I'm covering. And we're going to be looking at what is a long passage of Scripture, but I don't want to scare you. We're not going to take that long tonight. I'm just going to make a few observations. I am going to read the entire passage. It's about 17 verses, but it's kind of a long 17 verses. And I want to just make a couple of, of quick observations. The first one is that this, what we're going to read, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 39, are two remarkable miracle accounts. Oftentimes, at first glance, certainly, they seem to be two separate events. But I'm going to suggest to you after we read it that they are very much connected. So let's go ahead and read. I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, I actually am starting to use the ESV, but that's a brand new Bible that I have, and the pages always get stuck. So for tonight, since I didn't want to have that problem up on stage, I've got my old trusty NIV. Uh, Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to send them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them. And he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. I bet they did. And the people went out to see what happened. When they came to see Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear, so he got into his boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone begged to go out to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Pretty remarkable stories. 
I'm sure you've heard them in, in one way or another numerous times. And I'd like to suggest a couple of presuppositions as we look at this passage and make a few observations. The first is that we approach these stories as true historical accounts. They actually happened. They are real stories. And we call that in theology the veracity or the historicity of Scripture. It means that, yes, they're stories, but they're true accounts. They really did happen. But the second presupposition is I'd like you to remember something that often guides us, I think, at times uh, into some slight misunderstanding, even error. The chapters and verses that you see when you look at your Bible, chapter 8, verses 22 through verse 39, you've probably heard that those, those distinctions, those nomenclature, the, the way of organizing Scripture according to numbers didn't exist when the Scriptures were first written. And in fact, they didn't start until hundreds of years after Christ. And the current chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bible, and in fact are standardized now pretty much in the entire world in every translation of the Scriptures, that system has only existed since the 1500s. So when we look at a chapter, when we look at a verse, that's an entirely human effort at dividing the scriptures up, and most of the time it's fairly good. But sometimes it makes us think that one story is ended and another new thing is happening because it's just the sequential number and not really viewing the scriptures in the way they were intended to be read. This is what I mean, and that's why I love the message. It was a, it was a book, and when you read a book, you read a novel by John Grisham, it's not... It, 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 there may be a chapter distinction, but you don't read numbered verses, do you? You just read what it says. And we sometimes forget that that's how the scriptures were intended to be read. There are even denominations, and I don't, I, I don't um, make fun of them, but there are denominations who have actually used as some of their slogans and their trademark, if you will, that we teach the Bible verse by verse. Well, there's nothing wrong with going systematic. That's a great way of teaching the scripture. But there was no such thing as verse by verse when it was written. It was more thought by thought. So the second presupposition, let's not get overly worried about where one verse begins and one ends. And the third is that the gospel writers were not random in their placement of these stories. This section, these two events are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all in the same order. And that was not unintentional. And so what I would say is not only is the content absolutely necessary, the context can also inform us and help us. So looking at all of that, I want to make a couple of observations about each of these two stories. And then in the ultimate metaphor for we Americans, baseball, the real sport, I'm going to bring it home. Okay. My beautiful little granddaughter was born uh, two years ago, on April 1st, opening day. I mean, what, what better thing to remember? Your grandchild's birthday, but opening day, you know? Sometimes they do March 31st, but really, April 1st is opening day. The calming of the sea. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the, uh, over to the other side of the lake. Let's go to the other side of the lake. He announces what his, initial, or what his final goal is. Let's not just take a little uh, Sunday afternoon ride out on the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to the other side of the lake. 
Well, that begs the question right at the beginning of this verse, of this story, what was at the other side of the lake? Well, that's easy. We go to verse 27. It says, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Do you think that in Jesus declaring, let's go to the other side of the lake, perhaps his father had shared with him something is going, significant is going to happen on the other side of the lake. Jesus said it. And now we're going to read about an event that happens after he makes this rather um, unusually clear and stark statement that we're going to go to the other side of the lake. It says on this lake, they got into the boat, he fell asleep, and a squall, a terrible storm came down on the lake. The boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Now, a couple of observations. The first one I find absolutely amazing that any human being could fall asleep on a boat. Um, I don't do boats well. I fly a lot, but I hate ships and boats. And I feel bad because I could provide some really great vacations for Linda if I could go on a cruise, but that just ain't going to happen. Um, and I know some of you are saying, oh, you haven't tried the patch. I've tried the patches. You've tried. Folks, I took the, sh- the, the little boat from Battery Park out to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty and almost got sick. Okay, I, that's pretty pathetic, I know. But that's me. Okay, I just, I don't do boats. And I just can't imagine falling asleep on anything that's on the water. I can handle this, sort of. It's the combination of that and this one that just puts me out. Oh, our first wedding anniversary, we lived in Southern California um, the first couple years of our marriage before we moved to Colorado. And uh, we decided to go to Catalina Island, you know. And it was our first or second anniversary. And it seemed so romantic. You know, it's 26 miles, you know, across very deep water in the Pacific. And, uh, you know, stay a little place there, and it's kind of cool. And it wasn't a good time. Uh, it wasn't a good time. But I found that she loved me because I, my head was either overboard or in her lap the entire time. And she still put up with me. So... First observation, I'm amazed. Jesus must be the son of God because he's able to fall asleep on a boat. But beyond that, the guys that he's with are fishermen. So they are not unfamiliar with this lake. And you'll read in commentaries, scholars will tell you that this region is historically known for very quick-moving, radical, and, and violent storms to come up on this lake. It's not unusual at all. But this particular storm is so violent, is so threatening that these seasoned sailors are scared for their lives. Just an interesting observation we make there. And so it says in verse 24, the disciples went, woke him up, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Now, You've read that. You've heard that. But have you really read it? Now, Mark adds an unusual little point to it. Mark has just a little more detail, almost, almost the same story verbatim. But Mark adds to it as well that Jesus rebuked the winds and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Now, I don't want to delve too much into uh, the original languages and to Greek in this case. But I will tell you this. In the Greek language. We have moods. Uh, It's a little different than than English uh, tenses, but there's a mood called the imperative mood. 
And the imperative mood is when you make a command with the expectation that the hearer of the command will obey it. Let me give you an example. Come out with your hands up. The assumption behind that spoken, it's not a request, is it? We have a couple of of, uh, Colorado Springs finest in the lobby. I'm sure I could ask them. Hopefully they don't run in hearing me say that. That just dawned on me. That could have been a dumb thing to say over a uh, microphone. Uh, (laughs) Given our church's history, it may not have been a good idea. Anyways, you could ask them, and they would tell you, in fact, uh, in, in law enforcement academies, they teach what they call command presence. That when you make a command, you have to have a certain bearing about yourself that lets the other person know you mean business. So the assumption is, I am making a command, and the other assumption is, you are going to obey my command. We even do it when we train our animals. Sit. Lay down. Roll over. Play dead. Stay. Now, they may or may not listen. In the case of my beloved Toby, our golden retriever we had for 10 and a half years. I loved him to death, but he was completely uh, incapable of obeying almost anything I said. And the problem is, even with a dog, with a person, with a child, don't touch that. It's a being that has the potential, has the volition, has the will to obey, right? So we go back to our passage, and it says, Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waters. Mark adds, and he said to the waves, be quiet, be still. Jesus is using the imperative mood when talking to inanimate forces of nature, which is rather unusual. And it's not the only time Jesus does this. You remember when he's just around the time of the triumphal entry and we call Palm Sunday, Jesus goes by a fig tree, and it says he wants to reach out and take a fig, but it's not the season for figs. And then it says, he said to the tree, may no one eat fruit from you again. And then later, when they pass back by that same fruit tree, it says that all the disciples heard him. Yes, Jesus was talking to a tree. He was giving orders to a tree. They remembered that event. And they were shocked because the tree had now withered. And they said, oh my gosh, look at, he talked to the tree and it's withered. And Jesus is so helpful because he gives an explanation of what he did. And in his explanation, he says, if you say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and believe in your heart, it'll be done. Oh, great. The explanation to why he's able to speak to a tree is that we can speak to a mountain and see it move. That clears it right up. And here he's talking to waves and commanding wind to be still as if it has the potential of obeying him. And we read in the text, and all was calm. So what in the world is this talking about? Well, it seems odd. And some scholars, particularly those who do not come from a culture and a history of of any expectation that God can move supernaturally in our day and in our time. Some of them say it was poetic license. It was Jesus using this rather harsh language, but in kind of a rhetorical, poetic way. And I suppose that's one possibility, though I find that rather um, unrealistic. And while I cannot say with absolute certainty, when I look at the verses immediately following these 
I'm drawn back to when Jesus announced, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And then I think of the adjectives that describe Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this present evil age. And I listen to Jesus' language because this word, epitazomai, rebuke, is only used elsewhere throughout all of the Gospels when Jesus commands a demon to be quiet or commands a demon to leave a tormented individual. So in every other case, this imperative mood verb, this command, is given to command a demon to leave. But here, it commands wind and waves to cease. And it commands a violent storm to stop. A violent storm that surprisingly, surprises even experienced fishermen, surprisingly comes up after Jesus announces he's going to the other side of a lake where the first thing that's going to happen is a terribly tormented man is going to be there to greet him, where that man is going to be set free, and where the word about Jesus is going to spread throughout that region. And it makes me wonder if there isn't a connection. It makes me wonder if behind this particular event, the source behind the storm was in fact the ruler, the prince of the power of the air. Does that mean that Satan has some limited and level of control even over the earth and its natural forces? The scriptures would certainly tell us yes. Does that mean that Satan's intention is to throw up obstacles so that the events such as we read in this next story can be thwarted in some way? That would certainly seem to be the intent of Satan, wouldn't it? So let's go on to the next story. Radical story. There's, there's so much in here. We could spend uh, weeks in a sermon or a seminar, really, about spiritual warfare. That's not my intention for tonight. But we look at just the highlights of this storm, or this story, excuse me. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, verse 26, which is across the lake. And Jesus steps ashore. He's met, it says, by this demon-possessed man. We know, again, that this word in the Greek could be even translated demonized. Uh, but certainly in this case, it's a man who, for, we don't know the reasons, we don't know the history, we don't know the circumstances, but is so desperately tormented by demonic forces. Some people today might say, well, maybe he was just, there was serious mental illness. And I absolutely agree that mental illness is, is a real phenomenon and something that needs to be treated and taken seriously. Um, um, my one daughter-in-law is actually a therapist here in town. I have great respect uh, for the mental health care profession. Some might suggest I need the help of the mental health care profession. But saying all that to say that this is something beyond just that. This man, look at what it says about him. The people knew him. He was a local. He was from the town. They knew the guy. They knew him maybe even before this all happened. We don't know. But he wore no clothes. He was robbed even of basic human dignity by these forces within him that were just screaming out. Who can imagine the kind of torment that someone like this would have experienced in his life? They had tried to bind him up. Such a primitive way of dealing with somebody so tormented. And yet, what do you do with someone who is probably very violent and very unpredictable in his violence? He, it, where is he living? He's living in the cemetery. A crazy, naked, tormented man living 
in a cemetery. Can there be a more pathetic picture in your mind of someone who's about as far away from the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the wholeness of Jesus Christ? And Jesus meets this man. And we know the story, you know, he's, he commands the demons to leave and the demons don't leave. And then Jesus said, what's your name? And uh, they respond, we are legion for we are many. And there's this whole pig thing and that's a whole other story in itself. Some have suggested, well, you know, it was a Jewish area and the pigs would have been not kosher. But then others say, no, there were a lot of Gentiles in that area. We're not going to talk about, we're not going to dissect the pigs literally or grammatically tonight. But he just adds to this whole thing, this drama, if you will, to say that he gave permission to the demons. Somebody asked me, they said, why wouldn't he have just like killed the demons? And I said, well, this is kind of a deep theological idea, but demons don't die of old age. The same demons that were around at the fall of Lucifer are the same demons that are alive today. Which, by the way, is why in some of the, the nonsensical medium stuff, you know, these guys on TV that, you know, will channel you with your grandmother who died and all that. But they, they, they knew, like, my nickname that my grandma called me. Well, the demons weren't, aren't dead. They are the same demons that were around then. Don't be surprised if they can play parlor games, you know, which is about what it is. But in this case, Jesus commands these demons to leave. They leave. They go into the pigs. The pigs, you know, go off the cliff and everybody remembers that and notices it. But I want to draw your attention to the most remarkable verse of it all. Verse 35. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. You know, there is something about seeing evil destroyed by Jesus and his peace and his grace brought in that to me gives glory to God more than anything else we can say or do. When you see a life that was so destroyed and devastated brought into wholeness by God's grace. I debated about doing this, but I'm going to do it. I want to read just a very brief portion from my own personal diary. I have about 10 or 12 of these. They're journals that I keep during my trips, and I've been doing it now for about 11 years. And this is from Friday, September 20th, 2002. I was in Kigali, Rwanda. We were working with pastors and leaders that had come out of the the terrible genocide there, where if you remember, in the span of about 100 days, over 800,000 people were brutally slaughtered in the nation of Rwanda. And I was brought to a genocide memorial site, as they called it. And these are my words. And I apologize. I, I, I hope this is not too graphic and I debate it, but I just want to read this to you. I stood immobilized, wanting to run away, while at the same time, bizarre curiosity kept me transfixed on the scene before me. Greeting me in the back of the building as soon as I entered were two large burlap sacks, the kind I've seen everywhere in Africa. Only instead of holding charcoal or firewood, These were stuffed with human remains. Several human skulls were perched on top as if gazing at me. Oh my God, was the only audible response I remember making. The smell of death is still in the air and a seven-foot-high pile of rotting, blood-soaked clothing sits to the side of the large room. The worst sight of all, at the front of what was a church, is the altar 
with a decapitated human skull sitting where the communion chalice had once been placed. I realized that I stopped breathing 30 seconds ago, and I cannot walk anywhere because I'll be stepping on the gruesome remains of the victims, 5,000 men, women, and children. Leaving the sanctuary where the stench of death is still lingering, I was escorted to a desk where a visitor's book was sitting. Directly next to this desk were makeshift tables with several hundred human skulls lined up neatly. Again, I could not believe what I was seeing. As I began to look at them, I could, I could see the holes and cracks that surely represented the moment of their tragic death. Some were the skulls of children. This place is the most obscene thing I've ever seen in my life. I almost reached out to touch one of the skulls, but I couldn't. It just seemed wrong to satisfy my own curiosity. I tried to tape a short video segment today. I couldn't. I kept crying. Returning to the man at the small desk, I was asked to sign the visitor's book. Why in the hell is there a visitor's book in this horrible place, I thought. There were several hundred signatures already logged in the tattered book. After the name, it asked for remarks. Most of the remarks that I could read merely said, Dear God, why, or simply, My God. I don't even remember what I wrote today, as the tears were stinging my eyes while just writing my name. Just then, a woman came up to me in a very inappropriate fashion, with her hand outstretched as if begging. My interpreter spoke for a moment with the man in charge of the visitor's book and then explained to me who she was. This woman, along with her children and her husband, was herded into the church when the killing spree began. She was knocked down as the horrible chaos began and suddenly there were numerous bodies falling on top of her. She stayed still, feigning death for three days when she finally crawled out from underneath this personal hell. Her family, her people were all dead horribly dead. My Rwandan colleague then whispered to me, she is, how do you say it, completely mad. I reached into my pocket and pulled out some Rwandan francs with no idea of how much money it was and placed it in her hands. Before I could say or do anything, she just ran off almost like an animal. I have prayed for her many times over the years, though apart from a miracle, there is no reasonable expectation that she'll ever recover. Sadly, I've got dozens of stories like that. But at the same time, I've, seen, I've had the privilege of seeing something that I realize a lot of people in America don't see on a regular basis. I've seen people who've gone through these kinds of things transformed and delivered and set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I've seen them fully dressed and in their right minds. I've seen people who, for every reasonable assumption, were lost forever, freed by Jesus Christ. And I think in this room tonight, the hundreds that are here, if we had time to hear your story, there's some of you that were lost and now are found. There are some of you that were blind but now see. There are some of you that were drug addicts or, or had other issues in your life that would have killed you or sent you like this man living naked among the tombs had Jesus Christ not come and met you and set you free. And here's my big point, if you will, about this passage. This passage is about, I believe, spiritual warfare. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves because nothing is going to keep him from setting this man free. But our contemporary notions, and I, I apologize if, if this offends you, but I, I've been in the charismatic 
world for over uh, almost 40 years. And a lot of our current notions about spiritual warfare are cosmic and grandiose. We're bringing down strongholds over, over China, or we're breaking the power of greed over Wall Street. But Jesus, even if it was true, and I believe it probably is, that he commanded a storm to cease, it was not as a part of some charismatic magic show. It was not as some grandiose claim to be some highly spiritual, uh, highly, uh, what's the word I'm even looking for? Some kind of higher strategic spiritual warfare. It was so that a man who was so desperately in need of him could be fully clothed and in his right mind. As cosmic as spiritual warfare may even be, it is always personal. It is always so that people can be set free. It's so that people can walk where they were laying, where people can see where they were blind, where people can live life without the addictions that were grabbing into their heart and their soul and their mind. They can be freed to serve Jesus and live life and that more abundantly. And so what I want us to do, and Nico, if you would come up and help me, we're going to just close with a, a song. But I want us to get a sense that this is, I guess, my, my, my tagline. Jesus has, does, and he will move earth and move heaven and move hell in order to set individual people free. And Jesus has called us to engage in spiritual warfare. Very, very truly he has. But it's always about setting people free. It's about seeing the lives of broken people mended by the grace and the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. All over the room, let's lift our hands up to our Father, to Jesus, our King, to the Spirit who's at work in us. And God, we thank you that you are the Savior, the Deliverer, the Rescuer. Thank you that nothing stands in the way of your salvation. Thank you for what you have done at the cross. Thank you for what you are doing by your Spirit at work in us. Thank you that this salvation will be complete when we stand before you with joy one day, fully clothed with robes of righteousness in our right mind. Thank you, God. We belong to you, marked by you. We thank you for your salvation and your deliverance. And we go from here with your joy in our hearts. Send us, send us with this power of your spirit. Send us with this hope and this message life to all around us this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all thank God for Dr. Stephen Todd and his ministry. So grateful to be part of this. God bless you guys. Have a great week.